Do we say amen? That's a prayer, isn't it? Amen. Well, where is the church heading? Where's everything heading? To be under the headship and authority of Christ. That's what we first looked at last night, chapter 1, verse 10. And the role of the church, as it lives out its glorious solidarity with Christ, is to be a working model of that future unity and headship. On display for the universe to see, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 10. Not some dead stuffed animal in a glass case that you pass on the stairs. What a fascinating place, isn't it? (laughs) Do stop and have a look. I spotted the squirrel this morning. I saw the badger last night. but um, uh, No, not like that. This is a working model. It's it's got moving parts. Uh, It functions. It does things. But how come people like us, with all our flaws and our failings and our shortcomings, how come we've been brought together in the church for this purpose that God has to display this working model to the universe? Well, as we saw early this morning in chapter 2, 1 to 10, God reminds us that it's only by his sheer grace that we've been included in this great and eternal project. Because we were, by nature, D-E-D, which spells... Dead, enslaved, and damned. Well done. But we have been made alive. We've been rescued from slavery, redeemed, and welcomed at God's table. And then that is worked out in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, in, in relation to the sharpest and deepest and widest division ever in human history between Jew and Gentile. Bridged in Christ. I remember when we first came to Ireland and and people started uh, making sure that we understood a bit more of uh, the Irish question and the Irish problem and all of that stuff and it made it very clear to me that this didn't go back just a few decades. This goes back 850 years as it is now, right? Strongbow and all that. Um, If you know your history, which I don't really, but I'll bluff my way through this. Um, Of course, I was fascinated to discover that, of course, Strongbow was... What was he? What was his... uh, What uh, ethnic group did he come from? Norman. Thank you. And the Normans are? French. French. So the Irish problem is not caused by the English, but by the... (laughs) I was very pleased to discover that. Um, As an Englishman in Ireland... um, but you can trace back your tribal divisions, can't you? And you can, you can say, you know, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, and we know who to blame and all the rest of it. Um, well, even though that is some divide, and you know better than I do probably about that, um, this is actually a deeper and a sharper and a wider division, which if you turn on your televisions in 2014, and I suspect, sadly, in 2015, you will see that division being worked out still in Gaza, in Jerusalem, etc. It is the great, a great divide. And yet the amazing thing is that the grace of God brings together people from those two uh, opposing tribes and he welds them together into one new man or humanity. That's what the second half of chapter 2 is celebrating with the same access to God and his presence. That wonderful verse 18, for through Christ we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by the one Spirit. We walk together, hand in hand, through the same door to greet the same glorious Father, as he's described in 117. Paul's prayer is that the Church of Jesus Christ will experience more and more an understanding through the working of the Holy Spirit and his power at work in them to convince them 
of the love of God in Christ for them and to fill them with Christ's presence and love. That is the great prayer of of the second half of chapter 3. And as Paul thinks about these wonderful truths, he, he breaks out into a song of praise in verse, well, it's really from, where does the song begin? It's difficult to hear, isn't it, exactly where it begins, but it's somewhere in verse 14 following, so that when we get to verse 20, the, the whole of creation is being called to join in, to sing to him who is able to do immeasurably all, more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is that what he says? Is that what he says? Were you following in the text as I read? Is that what he says? What did I miss out? Anyone? Shall I read it again? Wakey, wakey. (laughs) Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now you see it, don't you? In the church. That's the first place that Paul prays that this this glory and power be seen at work in the church. And where is the church? Well, it's the community to which I hope each of us belongs. In many different communities, many different expressions, many different outcroppings of the one great church universal. So we're beginning to see more of God's eternal purpose to bring everything under the headship of Christ. And it's being worked out, yes, in the heavenly places, but also in the church. There's a connection between the two. But the question is, how is the local church getting there? the The answer is by growing in maturity through the ministry of God's word. Growing in maturity through the ministry of God's word. And we're going to, be, to start to look at some of the details of how, how the working model of the church actually works as we move on into chapter 4. I know we're moving at breakneck speed through Ephesians, but we've reached chapter 4 now. As Paul moves from chapters 1 to 3, which is largely teaching, uh, a doctrine if you like, to chapters 4 to 6, which is largely application of that teaching, though the division is not watertight. So, chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Literally, to walk worthy of the calling you have received. The calling to follow Christ as one of his people. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, quoting from Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers 
to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Let's pray. Our Father, we simply ask that your word would do its work in us who believe for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Do you ever remember your mother or father saying to you words to this effect? Would you please grow up? No? Oh, well... Must have been just me then. Um, maturity is an interesting thing, isn't it? Our, our title for this session is a plea for growing maturity, if you're taking notes. A plea for growing maturity. And maturity is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, if I were to ask you, how mature are you? How would you answer that? In words? In a sentence? I mean... I don't know about you, but it's kind of all sorts of conflicting thoughts go through the head when I think of a question like that in relation to who? In relation to me. If you ask me about other people, I can give you a, a fairly quick assessment of people I know. You know I can tell you how mature I think, I, I think they are. Um, well, what about you, John? How mature are you for your age? Oh, sorry, you had to mention that at the end. Um, we might have expected a bit more maturity at your age. Um, well, how mature am I? As a person, how mature are you? How mature are we? I'll use that nice, comfortable plural. Um, how mature are we as Christians? Now, I don't know how long. I, maybe you don't call yourself a Christian, but I suspect most of us do. Um, okay, if you're a Christian, how mature are you as a, as a Christian? How long have you been a Christian? I mean, after all these months or years as a Christian, is that the kind of level of maturity you would have hoped for or you're content with? And I think we can ask the question of a church, a local church. You know, how mature is our church as a church of Jesus Christ? Is there maturity corporately together in our body life? Well, in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, the Apostle Paul is making this plea for growing maturity. And there's a note of urgency, isn't there? If you look at verse 1, we can hear it. As a prisoner for the Lord, he's paying a price for this. He's not messing about in his life. He's not drifting through life. He's in prison because of the preaching of the gospel. And then he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Or, as the NIV, NIV puts it, to live a life Worthy of the calling that you have received. Verse 3, make every effort. Be eager in these things. Don't just stand there. Don't just sit there. Get on with it. Do you feel that sense of urgency? Well, the phrase in verse 1 of chapter 4 could be um, to walk worthy of your calling. To live a life worthy of, your, of the calling you've received could, could, in a sense, be a heading for the, for the rest of the book. Now, that's now what he's going to talk about, what it means to live a life, to walk worthy of the calling. As if he's saying, in the light of the amazing revelation that God intends to unite the heavens and the earth under one head, our Lord Jesus, and that the church is called to be a working demonstration model of that future universe, 
future unity rather, for the universe to see, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And the aim is, as verse 13 puts it, maturity in Christ. That you become mature in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's the one who fills everything. He fills the church. He should be filling us by his Holy Spirit, as we shall see later in the book. And that maturity is worked out as the unified identity we have in Christ becomes an increasing reality in the church. So two points, really. How can we grow in maturity as Christians is the question as a church. Number one, eagerly maintain our God-given unity, verses 1 to 6. Eagerly maintain our God-given unity. And then secondly, verses 7 to 16, carefully aim at growing unity. So eagerly maintain our God-given unity and then carefully aim at growing unity. So verses 1 to 6, maintain the God-given unity and do it eagerly. Now, just an assumption that we need to make sure we've spotted here that Paul is making because I think it's really important. He's saying that if we are Christians, if our local church is an outcrop of the true church gathered around Christ in the heavenly places, then we do not need to create unity. We have been given unity in Christ. So what he says in verse 3 is make every effort to maintain or to keep, to guard the unity of the Spirit. In other words, something you've been given it, now maintain it. Maybe you know someone, maybe you are that person who has had the enormous privilege of being given a house by your parents or grandparents I know it does happen hasn't happened to me yet I'm looking forward to it Um, now if you've been given a house you don't need to go and buy a house because you've been given a house the job now is to maintain it which is quite a task as you'll know if you have a house And in the same way, our task, as chapter 4, verse 3 puts it, is is not to go out and get a house, to go out and get unity, see if we can achieve unity. No, we've been given unity in Christ. Our job is to maintain the unity that we've been given. And how we do it is very clear, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. All the qualities you don't get underlined and encouraged when you go on an assertiveness training course at work. You know, our first session, we're going to talk about being completely humble and gentle and how that is the key to success in the business world. Uh, Not. Actually, it probably is, but that's another day's discussion. Um, Humility, gentleness, patience, putting up with one another, in a loving manner. I think that last one's one of the hardest, isn't it? Uh, you can just about bear with one another, but we've got to do it in love. We'll come back to what that means, this love, when we get to the end. Putting up with one another in a loving matter, manner is a great challenge. And as we were thinking in an earlier session, you know, when people have spent time with us, is that how they would describe us? But they say, you know, so-and-so, you know, when I think of them, I think of someone who's completely humble, who's gentle, who's patient, who just puts up with the most awkward and difficult of people in such a loving way. It's amazing. Well, maybe it is amazing, but it should be normal. That should be the normal Christian way of living. We are to strive to maintain the Spirit's unity. It's the unity given by the Holy Spirit. And to do it in the bond of peace, verse 3. In other words, I think, in, in the bond which consists of peace, that, that it's not our feelings, it's the product of our behavior. We've been given peace through Christ. He's won that peace, as we saw back in chapter 2, verse 15, or we didn't see it, but we would have seen if we'd been in chapter 2, verse 15. Um, he's made peace through his death on the cross. 
So what we're being asked to do is to make that peace increasingly evident in our relationships one with another. So that our experience of church life will be essentially one of peace and not of conflict. You may say, well, if only. The church I've been involved in, I know of churches where there's all kinds of conflicts going on. Yes, I'm, I'm sure you do. And maybe you've been in a church or are in a church where there is conflict. But that should be abnormal. People should be looking at it and, and saying, that's unhealthy. That, you know, that there's disease in the church. Just as if you're, a, if you're a medically trained, you can probably look at someone uh, and see symptoms that maybe the rest of us wouldn't spot. And you say, hmm, I think they've got X. And there'll be some fancy Greek or Latin word that none of us have ever heard of. Um, and you may well be right, but you can spot the symptoms. It's not healthy. And so when we find conflict in a church, we should be thinking, hmm, that's, that's not good. That's unhealthy. Now, it's not that we should pretend to, to agree when clearly we don't. Um, there is truth behind this unity. It's not a sort of vague, airy, fairy, let's all pretend that we agree when we don't. No, it's based on the unity of God. Look how he goes on in chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's the unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the foundation of this unity that is there in the church, but needs to be worked at and maintained One Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. One faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. One baptism, expressing faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. There is nothing that exists, no atom in the universe, no particle, nothing at all that exists except through our God and Father, who maintains it. So the God-given unity of the church is based on the indestructible unity of God himself. That's what Paul is saying. And he pleads with us to do everything we can to maintain it. It's amazing, isn't it, that our God should so order things. Because you think, well, if he's such a great God, surely he can just maintain it without us. Well, of course he can. He's got the power. But his desire is that we should be involved in that maintenance of the unity of the church. With the privilege of Christian calling goes the responsibility to work, work, to walk worthy of that calling. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 10, which clarified our response to God's grace? All of it is empowered by God, but it remains our responsibility. It's not either or. It's, well, either God will do it or I'll do it. It's both and. Both are true. It's God's enabling and his ability, and yet we have a responsibility as Christians. Are we taking that seriously, that responsibility? And before we ever worry about you know, other people's gifts and whether they're using them or whether we're doing enough in evangelism, always a good question to be asking. We need first to ask God to help us in all our dealings with our brothers and sisters in the church to live in this way. Not that we should wait for perfection before we do any evangelism. Now, that would be a mistake. But that we should be thinking, well, is the community life, are the relationships within our church such as when we bring the outsider in, they can smell the fragrance of Christ or just the whiff of conflict? It's the fragrance of Christ that we want them to smell, isn't it? And how does this work out in practice? Well, I don't know about you, but I, I sometimes really go off emails. Maybe you've moved on. I mean, our children don't do emails anymore, and I send them an email I don't hear for weeks. Um, I, I do use WhatsApp. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've caught up with that, but I'm told even that is now. What would you use? How do you communicate? Viva. Viva. Well, there you go. There's a new one on me. Talk to me later. Talk to you later, Philip. Um, Snapchat? What are you into? Do you do Facebook anymore or have you moved on from that? Who, who, who does Facebook still? Who still does Facebook? 
Right, who doesn't do Facebook? Who has never done Facebook? <laughs> hey, good man. <laughs> so those of you who don't do Facebook, what do you use in social media? WhatsApp? <laughs> Great. I like it. I'm not quite as old-fashioned as I thought. Um, anyone else? Now, Twitter. You're a Twitter, are you? Right, Twitterer. Right. Okay. You tweet. I mean, these things are extraordinary, aren't they? Facebook and Twitter, that's on forever on the web, isn't it? Once you've posted that, isn't that right? You can never erase it uh, for the rest of your life and eternity. No, uh, no, maybe just life. Um, but you know, I've noticed that in some of our, our sort of internal communications in the church, you know, someone uh, sends an email and co- copies all. You know, everyone's included. Someone else instantly sends a reply, and someone else thinks, "Oh, I need to put an angle in on this." And the whole thing, I call it now. F- the, the the term I think is it's a flurry of emails. That's the generic uh, collective noun that I think. Is that the right one? Well, I, I use it. Uh, so I, I sent an email, I think it was yesterday or the day before, saying, let's not reply to this one that we just had sent around, lest we have a flurry of emails. You know, because sometimes someone just says in the middle of it, because they're dashing off quickly, oh, I better say something, instant communication, thoughtless communication. Just a word, just a, a nuance um, that, that just, ooh, like an elbow. Um, like the slow motion replay of the tackle, you see the elbow going into the side of the head, and you think, ow, that must have hurt. I'll forgive the guy lying on the ground going like this. He's not just trying to get a yellow card for the other player. And we've got to make sure that in all our communications, whatever your com- media of communication is, maybe you actually just talk to people, I don't know. <laughs> Still happens, apparently. Um, that verse 2 is true. That we are completely humble and gentle. Just before you click send, just read it through again and run it through the gentleness. Sieve. Check, scan, whatever. Humility, patience, bearing with one another. This is the way to maintain the unity that God has given us. It's not rocket science, is it? It's very simple and straightforward. The challenge is just to keep on doing it every time we communicate or relate to a brother or sister and not to grow weary of well-doing. But if we listen to the Apostle's plea for growing maturity in the church, we will not only eagerly maintain our God-given unity, first of all. Secondly, we will carefully aim at growing unity. Unity can grow, verses 7 to 16. Unity should grow. And our maturity as individual Christians and as a church grows as we carefully aim at this growing unity. This is the the aim, verse 13. It's until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Verse 15b so that in all things we will grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, more and more connected with our head, like members of a body, the head being the Lord Jesus Christ, we being the the members of the body, related to the head, coordinated increasingly with the head. So how are we to do it? Three things, and we finish with these. These three things are absolutely vital. Number one, we must use, or A, if you're using one and two for the others, A, use the gifts God has given each of us for Christ's glory. That's what we must do. We must use the gifts God has given us, each of us, and use them for Christ's glory. Verses 7 to 10. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Not grace in the sense of saving grace, a la chapter 2, um, verses 8 to 10, but grace as in the sense of a gift, because that's really what the word means. It means gift. If you get an ex-gratia payment from your employer, they will say, we don't, we're not legally obliged to give you this, but we're going to give it to you as a bonus. 
It's ex gratia, it's out of grace, it's out of gift. And each Christian has been given a gift by Christ, and he has measured it out. That's what verse 7 is telling us. To, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So if you say, well, I don't have any gifts. I'm a Christian, but I don't have any spiritual gifts. You are contradicting God's word. It's a very dangerous place to be. If you say, well, uh, I, I don't like to use my gift or gifts. Um, I'm, kind of, you know, I'm shy. I'm an introvert. Well, that's just another form of sin and selfishness. I mean, extroverts have sin and selfishness. They normally just by being extrovert too much is the way that they uh, show their self-centeredness. Uh, the introvert by just pulling away from doing anything to help others. Um, now, terrible caricature. I'm sure there'll be some questions about that tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but never complain about the measure of gift that you have. For it is Christ who measured it out to you. And don't be jealous of other people's gifts. They didn't ask for it. They were just given it. Now verses 8 to 10 are probably about Christ's coming to earth. As a man descending to earth. Uh, where the, uh, He who descended to the lower earthly regions is the one who then ascended, verse 10, higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Well, we already know. Paul tells us that at the end of chapter 1. That is Christ, the Lord Jesus. And he is the one, then, verse 11, who has given some these different gifts. Now, the quote in verse 8 is, is a little puzzling in context in chapter, uh, Psalm 68, 18, which in the original psalm talks about receiving rather than giving gifts. But the context is military victory. And often, even in this day and age, there is a victory parade when a war has been won. I'm old enough to remember the, the Falklands War. Um, and I used to work in the city of London. And you may know, you may not, there was a victory parade. This is in uh, the venerable Maggie Thatcher's day. Um, and it was actually outside our office window. So I remember looking down from the office window on this victory parade. And then there was the flyover on the top of the parade to celebrate victory in war. Now, I didn't see any spoils of war being paraded down the street um, or captives. No Argentinian soldiers being frog-marched down that I spotted because that's not how we do things, quite. But in those days, they certainly did. They'd been on a, a military campaign in the Roman era. Um, they would, of course, the Romans never invaded Ireland. You know why, don't you? Agricola, the Roman governor of Britain, sent a ship to sail around. Did you know this? Sent a ship to sail around Ireland to have a look to see if it's worth invading. <laughs> I think you've got the rest. Um, a few more trees in those days. Um, the victor paraded the spoils of war, and then what do you do with them all? You've got all this stuff that you've nicked off your enemy... Um, well, basically, you re you've received these gifts and tributes from, from people who you've subjugated, and now you distribute them. So the receiving and the giving of gifts actually is two sides of the same coin when it comes to winning military victory, at least in that cultural context. And the Christ who has won the victory, ascended on high, led captives in his train, and gave gifts to men. He's won. What are the victory gifts that he's dispersing and distributing to those who fought on the winning side. That's the kind of idea that probably Paul has in mind here. But what is striking in verse 11 is how Paul now talks about certain people as gifts of Christ to the church. So the gifts he's talking about are actually people. And four particular gifts are chosen, which are, which are like drivers of the rest. I don't know if you, I, I mean, how many people don't have a computer? No, I won't embarrass you. Don't put up your hand if you don't have a computer. But I, I'll be standing here thinking, I don't, I'm not sure I believe you. Sure, everyone has a computer these days. We all have, therefore, computer problems, don't we? Um, and we all have these, it's not working, it's frozen, the blue circle of death. Uh, um, Shall I wait for the program to respond or shall I not? Um, but what we have learned, I think probably all of us, is that um, 
Certain things don't work because you haven't downloaded the driver. Oh, you have to download a driver, do you? Oh, I didn't realise that. Oh, right, thank you. How do I do that? Well, let me show you. Um, and so we get the help we need, hopefully, and eventually we download the driver, and then we press and, whoa, it works. Did you see that? Um, and it, the penny drops. We need to download the driver if the thing is going to work. Well, what is the driver that makes the church work and function as it should in unifying and growing together in maturity? The answer is, in chapter 4, verse 11. The ascended Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor-teachers. To be the drivers that enable God's people to do works of service. Now, I know that's a paraphrase, but I think that's the idea. To enable the rest of the church to do its job. In other words, the word gifts, if you want to use that phrase, are the gifts that are the driver of the rest of the church. And who are these word gifts? Well, the, apostle, the apostles are, are almost certainly the original 12 apostles, like Paul says at the beginning of the letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And we know from other um, cross-references that he doesn't mean just any old messenger. He means one of the authorized messengers who brings the word of God authoritatively into the church. And we have their message in the New Testament written for us. Some to be prophets. Well, who are those? Is this a prophetic gift for the current church? Probably not. Um, Is it the Old Testament prophets? Probably not, because it's the wrong order. If it was Old Testament prophets, you'd expect... Prophets and apostles in that order, kind of historically, but it's apostles and prophets the other way around. So it's probably New Testament prophets, but what kind? Well, if you look back in chapter 220, you'll see he's already used this phrase. And interestingly, he's described the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church. So the Apostles and Prophets, chapter 2, verse 20, are built into the foundation of the church, of God's people, God's household. Which kind of suggests that they're they're there underneath, but not visible now. And chapter 3, verse 5, tells us that actually it was contemporary with Paul that these gifts were given. So he talks in chapter 3, verse 4, of... Um, in reading this, he says, you'll be able to understand my insight into the revelation of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. To whom? To God's holy apostles and prophets. Which is all of a piece with chapter 2, verse 20, isn't it? That they're part of the foundation. There was a revelation given in the first century AD, to be precise, historically, to a certain group of people who are classified as God's holy apostles and prophets, of whom Paul can write in chapter 3 as men who are now alive, who've had now revealed to them by the Spirit certain insights and truths. But this is not to take away things from us. This is just to help us understand the foundation upon which we are built as a church of Jesus Christ. So back to chapter 4, verse 11. The ascended Christ gave apostles and prophets in the first century who are the foundation of our faith. Why do we believe what we believe? Why are we spending all this time looking at this ancient book of, uh, an ancient letter to um, Christians in a church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago? Why? Well, because we believe that Paul was an apostle and that he was given the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago nearly in a way that nobody today is given authority to give words from God to the church. And therefore, this has a unique authority. This is the foundation of our belief and our practice. Then two more gifts. Evangelists and shepherd teachers. I think it's probably one gift. Shepherd teacher. Pastor teacher. Now, I know there are some churches which have been slow and to this day are very reticent to appoint a pastor, a shepherd teacher, 
I'm not going to name any denominations, but I think you may know who I mean. But it's interesting, isn't it, how some of those denominations are very quick to appoint evangelists. It's always that business, isn't it? When you point at someone, there are always three fingers pointing back. Um, and if we point the finger at a church which, oh, why don't you have a pastor? You'd be so much more effective as a church if you had a pastor teacher. They might well turn and say, well, do you see those three fingers pointing back? You'd be so much more effective as a church if you appointed, a va- if you appointed an evangelist. Um, these are the gifts for today. There's no doubt about that. There's no dispute about the third and the fourth of these word gifts. Pastor, teacher, and evangelist. So let me just make an encouragement to you as you have influence in your church, not just to encourage the appointment of pastor teachers, but to encourage the appointment of evangelists, people who have a clear gifting from God. The ascended Christ has gifted them to be explainers and proclaimers of the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ in a particular effective way. Not that others and the rest of us don't have that responsibility to witness, but that they have a special gift. And pastor teachers, I think it's one gift. You can't really have someone who's a pastor who can't teach. And you can't really have a a teacher who can't pastor. No, it's got to be what the church needs for unity and maturity is pastors who can preach and preachers who can pastor. Now, how are you doing? You still awake? It's been a long morning, doing really well. Nearly there. Can you cope with one more lap round? Yeah? Great. If you want to stand up and just stretch, why don't you just do that? If you want to? Or just stretch where you're sitting. Just, yeah. Because, um... Okay, so each of us, if we're, going to, if we're going to aim carefully at growing maturity, we need to use the gifts God has given each of us for Christ's glory. That's the first thing to note under this second main heading. The second thing to note is that we need to give the word gifts their rightful place that as drivers for all the other gifts. It's not that those who have word gifts are superior but they have a different function. They have a particular function to enable the service of the rest of God's people. So verse 12, it is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And when all Christians are serving as they should, using the gifts God has given them, then the body of Christ is being built up. It's, it's like going to the gym. You know, It's when you exercise, when you work out, that you gradually build up your strength and your muscles. One of the things every parent longs for their child is that they would grow in maturity. I remember um, a GP friend of mine in Ireland received a call from a woman one day asking if she could fix an appointment for her son. The GP was puzzled. Why? Well, she checked the address of the caller. Why was she puzzled? Because the son in question was 42 years old. But mummy was ringing up to fix an appointment. And we all think, oh dear, oh dear, we need a bit of maturity here. Well, children are unstable in their emotions. I remember learning, my wife is medical, and I never never knew this word, but this wonderful word, labile. Do you know that word? Um, Labile? I thought it was to do with your lips. But anyway, it's um, meaning unstable in emotions. Is that right? Got that right, have I, Claire? Um, Well, we must grow up and be less and less unstable in our emotions We must be more able to take responsibility as we grow up. We must be careful that we don't be like children. Verse 14, if you are growing with the word gifts, bringing people to an increasing understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and the faith, building us up, then we will no longer be infants, children, labile, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. 
It's a, it's a picture from the sea, isn't it? I don't know if you looked out at the lake uh, or loch this morning. There's, there's a, quite a bit of wind up. You can see the waves, even on a small loch, like just across the, the grass there. Um, the wind, which of course is what causes waves, as, you, as I discovered from a meteorologist friend of mine. And I don't know what the winds of doctrine are that are blowing through your church at the moment. They're always blowing through the wider church and the particular local church, aren't they? One of the latest is the idea that a loving God could not possibly send people to hell. In the end, everyone goes to heaven. Love wins. It's a wind of doctrine. But we have to watch out so that we're not blown off course by such half-truths, which are actually dangerous heresies. A mature church is one where people are well taught from the scriptures, united in their faith and their understanding of Christ, so that, verse 15, they can instead speak the truth in love to one another. Now, this is one of the great misused verses of the Bible. There's a sort of catalogue of them. This is quite near the top in terms of... Have you not heard people say, um, be very rude to someone, or to you maybe, and say, I'm just speaking the truth in love? No, that's not, it's not meant to be a kind of um, invisibility cloak for, for rudeness, as if it kind of disappears behind this, speaking the truth in love. Whew. Oh, I've gone. Um, what is the truth? It's the truth of the gospel. It's, it's right belief and right conduct that flows from right belief, right behavior. It's talking, that's what the truth is. And it's about communicating that to one another. So as Christians grow in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, verse 13, they increasingly understand the truth about God that we've been given through the Scriptures. And they increasingly understand the truth of the implications of that, how we should live in the light of it. And they're able to communicate one with another so that you are actually able to be a help to someone else spiritually as you explain to them, for example, the, the reality of the humanity of Christ, that he does understand us because he is still one of us, for example. Because you've grasped that he's not just fully God, he's fully man. So you speak the truth. Or you, uh, as someone is getting very grumpy and grumbly, you take them to Ephesians 4 verse, verse 2, don't you? And you remind them that, look, we've got to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. We've got to be completely humble and gentle and patient bearing with one another in love. And you speak the truth in love to them, wanting the best for them. We sometimes talk, don't we, about Bible teaching churches, and that's a good thing. But the teaching of God's word is a means to an end. I think we might perhaps better describe, or ought to describe our churches as Bible-obeying churches rather than just Bible-teaching church. Are we a Bible-obeying church? That's really what matters, not just are we a Bible-teaching church. Otherwise, we're just stuffing our heads with knowledge. We need to be like an orchestra, not a bus. Right? So in a bus, people like to... Well, we all like to... A good driver. I was on a bus the other day with definitely a bad driver, and I did not like it. Uh, I want a good driver for the bus I'm on, please. But basically, I'm just sitting there or standing there, as it normally is in London, uh, as a passenger. Uh, I'm not contributing at all. But in an orchestra, everyone has a part to play. Yes, you have a conductor. Conductor's job is critical. So the word gifts are critical to the operation of the church. But the conductor's job is not to make everybody look at them with their fancy twirls and all the rest of it. And uh, great arm movements. And Well, you've seen those kind of conductors that just draw attention to themselves. But it's to enable each of the people in front of them in the orchestra to produce what the creator of the music had in mind. And that's what the job of the word ministers are. So as we carefully aim at growing unity, we must each use the gifts God has given us. We must let the word gifts be the drivers and we must let the whole body, this is the third point, but we'll, we haven't time to expand it, we'll just mention it. We must let the whole body build itself up in love. It's very clear in verse 15 and 16 speaking the truth in love the purpose is for the welfare of the other we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is christ 
From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, it's an anatomical idea, grows and builds itself up in love. It's more than anatomy. We're working out in the gym. As each part does its work, but we're building ourselves up in love. So the maturity of the church is seen in the love that brother and sister have one for another. This is how they'll know you're my followers, said Jesus. By your love, one for another. Love not as a, a feeling of affection. You don't have to feel affection for everyone in your church. Some of them you may. The more the better. But there'll be some that... Affection is not the first word that comes to mind as you think of them. It's not that kind of love. It's a commitment to care. That's the love that we're looking for, that God has for us. He doesn't look at us and say, Oh, isn't she lovely? Isn't he just so gorgeous? No. He says as exactly as we are. But he's committed to our welfare. He's committed to care for us. And that's the kind of love we need to have for one another. This is the path to growing maturity. Let's respond to Paul's plea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you, the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you, in your great unity, have established a unity among your people whom you have called to yourself. Please help us to respond to this appeal from the Apostle Paul that we should do everything we can to maintain that unity. And also, as we look to the future, that we would aim carefully at growing unity as we see the word gifts driving the service of the church as we seek to be joined more and more effectively to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we encourage one another, speaking truth about belief and behavior and doing it in love because we care for one another, even those brothers and sisters we really struggle with. Give us the grace to love them and to care for them that there might be in our lives and in our churches growing maturity. For Jesus' sake. Amen.